Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, as some of you know, I was out in Michigan this week preaching, and one thing that I discovered about Michigan is that they love their college football out there. I mean, they do. I was out in morning walks, seeing flags and painted on garage doors and bumper stickers. They love their University of Michigan Wolverines. And I also learned about their big annual rivalry between the Wolverines and Ohio State. That is a big game. Everyone amps up for that. It's huge. There's all kinds of intensity about it, ferocity. I mean, they've met 114 times in their history. I mean, they're keeping track, keeping score. And I thought about what it must be like in the locker room before they go out for that game every year. I mean, they've got to be geared up and amped up and just the tradition and all that they have going into that game, going through that tunnel onto the gridiron. I mean, they must be just just ready to just conquer the world. They needed some of that disciplined, intentional, focused ferocity 11 years ago when they played a little team called Appalachian State. There was just no way anyone thought the University of Michigan would have any trouble at all with Appalachian State. I mean, there's just no way. That year, 2007, the, the analysts thought they were just a shoe-in for the Big Ten Conference, that they were going to go to the national championship. I mean, this was just kind of like a bump on their schedule on September the 1st, 2007. And yet, if you know anything about sports, this became known as the biggest college football upset in history. Appalachian State just cleaned their clock. They lost, and everyone was stunned and shocked, and it was horrible. Now, I know nothing about the mindset individually of those players as they went down the tunnel onto the gridiron that day. I can only imagine that that kind of disciplined intensity was not there. I do know, though, about a battle in the Valley of Elah some 3,000 years ago where there was a favored warrior that was expected to win and was handed a demoralizing loss there in the valley. His name is Goliath, and Goliath, as you know, had everything going for him, at least when it comes to what the world has to say about winning a battle. I mean, the Philistines were armed to the teeth. They had the money. They had the resources. And, of course, they had him, Goliath. He was huge. He was undefeated. He was the guy that stood there in the valley taunting the armies of Israel. And out comes a kid with a slingshot and no armor on. And I know his mindset. His mindset was, what are we doing? What are we wasting time for? Why are you sending this kid out? This is, this is ridiculous. I mean, why am I even wasting my time? Well, of course, you know the story of David and Goliath. And he ends up losing, losing big. He loses his life that day. And everyone realizes what a, just a, an upset. We're going to talk about the greatest upset in the Bible. That, that has got to be it. David and Goliath still become an idiom in our culture for the biggest upset. Uh, David and Goliath's story. Now, when a preacher brings up David and Goliath in a sermon, oftentimes they're trying to get you uh, in the sandals of David and trying to get you to think about victory. But I want you today, it may be more profitable for us, to put ourselves in the gigantic sandals of Goliath. That might be helpful because it's good for us not to walk into battle thinking we got this for that kind of overconfident mindset that Goliath clearly had and was revealed to have. 
As a matter of fact, that's the concern of Jesus in the passage that we've reached in our study of Luke, Luke chapter 22. And I'd like to look at just four verses today, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. So grab your Bibles this morning and look up this passage as we continue our series through Luke. And this passage in particular is helpful knowing the context that Jesus has already told them, there's someone here among us who's going to betray me. That's how the chapter starts. So you wouldn't think this would be a passage about people being overconfident, but it soon turns into that. I mean, you remember what happens here when all of that concern about, could it be me? Is it you? Who's going to betray Christ? They're having this discussion among themselves, and then they end up uh, degenerating into a discussion about who's the greatest among them. In the midst of all of that, Jesus stops here in verse number 31 and speaks to Simon Peter. And here's how it goes. I'll read it for you. Verses 31 through 34. I'll read from the English Standard Version in Luke 22 as Jesus says, Simon, Simon. And you know we call him Simon Peter. That's his old name, Simon. His new name that Jesus gave him was Peter. Simon, Simon. He says it twice. The intensity, the sobriety of it all. Behold, Satan demanded to have, have y'all. Because this is a second person plural pronoun. And unfortunately in modern English, we don't have a distinction between you and y'all. And that's helpful, I suppose, in the Bible. And in the Greek New Testament, the language of the New Testament that it was originally written in, we have that distinction between second person singular, you, and second person plural, you, you all. And so we have in this text him directly talking to Simon, an individual, and he says, Satan demands to have you all. Now, we already know it started with this. Satan's already got a hold of one of them. His name is Judas, and it says Satan entered into Judas, and he went out to betray him. So now we got 11 guys left, and he says to Simon, who's supposed to be the quarterback of this team, ultimately, he's going to be the senior preaching pastor at the first church in the book of Acts, the church of Jerusalem, and it's huge. It's a megachurch, 3,000 and 5,000, and lots more than that. I mean, this reached, at least by any just reasonable calculation, like 10,000 people in downtown Jerusalem, and here you have the one that's supposed to do that, and he's being told, Satan wants to get all of you guys, and he wants to sift you, y'all, sift all of you like wheat. It's the only time we see this word sift in the New Testament. And it has certainly a violent connotation to it. And I often say as I read this, just as a cross-reference, I mean, it may not be clear what this means to us in our day, but we certainly know it's not good. We don't want Satan sifting us, a violent shaking. It's like a sieve might be a better picture of it than what you might think of the basket and throwing up on a ruinous threshing floor or some breezy hill and having the chaff blown away from the the wheat. I mean, it has the idea of taking a a sieve and shaking it. And here it is. Satan wants to have y'all and he wants to sift y'all like wheat. But, verse 32, you might want to distinguish this in your English Bibles, but I prayed for you. Hopefully your margin says that. You, singular, not you all. Hey, Simon, I prayed for you, that your faith, singular, may not fail. That when you have turned again, it's interesting, that must imply that you're going to fall into something or go into something or head down something you shouldn't be in, but you've got to turn around and get out of that, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. As we get started with this passage, I want to start at the bottom, verses 33 and 34, because even when I read that, I read it the way most of you think about this passage, and that is that Peter's sitting here bloviating about his own strength, and he says, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death, and you start saying, ah, Christians shouldn't say that, because when I read that Peter says, I'm willing to go with you both to prison and death, you go, oh, Peter, you roll your eyes, Peter, 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 Christians shouldn't say those things. 
But I guarantee this, when you're reading through the New Testament and you get to Acts 21, verse 13, and Paul says almost the identical words, you don't roll your eyes and go, oh, Paul, 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 shouldn't say that. No, Paul says the same thing. He's in the house of Philip there. And Agabus says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, run into all kinds of terrible things. And Paul responds, I'll quote it for you. Here it is, the text. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You don't go, oh, Paul, you shouldn't be saying that. Why? Because you know what happens. He does go to Jerusalem. He does get arrested. He gets taken to Caesarea in a prison. He ends off going off to Rome, eventually appealing to Caesar. He gets released for a while, then he gets re-imprisoned, then he gets executed. And you go, there's a martyr of the faith right there. But you know, because Jesus immediately says it in our passage, oh, Peter, nah, it ain't going to work out that way for you. You're going to fall right on your face. The rooster will not crow this day. Now, you know the context. Last supper, it's evening, it's nighttime. It, we won't even get till the morning. I'm going to go to Gethsemane, I'm going to get arrested, and the next day I'm going to be crucified. And before the morning dawns, as the, as the rooster starts crowing, you're going to already have denied me three times. I mean, this is big. This is like standing at the front of an auditorium and exchanging vows on your wedding day. I love you. I love you. I'm going to be your husband. I'll swim across the, the biggest ocean. I'll climb the highest mountain for you. And then you get off the platform. You go onto the patio. You got your refreshments out there. And someone starts picking on your wife. And you go, I don't know her. I don't know who she I, I, I never met her. I mean, this is just a complete, utter failure. What are you doing? You just vowed that you are so committed you would go to prison and death. And as a matter of fact, the parallel passages in Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 26, you have him comparing himself to the other disciples, which we got in the context earlier. They're arguing about who's greatest. And I'm sure Peter's going, hey, as it says in the other passages, even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. So what is the difference between Paul saying those things and Peter saying those things besides the fact that as they move beyond that statement, one of them actually does it and one fails. Right out of the gate, he fails. Now we know he turns because he does end up being crucified upside down as a martyr, but there's this failure that's so notorious that Jesus is pointing out to him. What is he trying to do? Well, here's the thing. Do not in any way in your mind think that the goal of the Christian life is for you not to be resolved like this. I want you to go out of this parking lot today saying, hey, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how tough it is as a Christian, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death for Christ. I'd love for you to have that kind of resolve. The Apostle Paul had that resolve. The Old Testament says you should have that kind of resolve. We memorize those verses in Joshua 1. Hey, be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid. We see it in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. You ought to be strong, like a strong warrior man. Be strong, be a man, be strong. That's the command in the New Testament. But there's something in Paul's mind that is absent in Peter's mind, and the distinction there is critical. And the distinction is that Peter must not have the same mindset that Paul had. When you asked him about the other apostles, he said, I'm the least of all the apostles. You ask Peter, we know in the context, he's arguing with the others about who's the greatest. There is something about Peter's self-assessment where he does not see in himself any apparent weakness. He thinks, I can do this. He has an overconfidence in winning the battle of temptation. Paul, on the other hand, we know enough about his biographical sections in his, in his letters where he makes it very clear. Listen, my sufficiency is not in myself. We have this treasure in earthen vessels and jars of clay. The power, the surpassing power of the greatness can be seen to be from God, not from us. We're weak. What is Paul? What is Apollos? We're nothing. Everything comes from God. There is a sense of dependence on God and an inherent respect for the weakness of being a human being. And apparently Peter doesn't have that. Number one on your outline, and if you're taking notes, let's just observe from verses 34 and 33 
that we should be mindful of our weakness. Be mindful of your weakness. I'm not asking you, carefully now, I'm not asking you to wallow in your weakness. I'm not asking for you to glory in the fact that you're nothing. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for you to be strong. And here's how it works in the Bible. If you recognize your inherent weakness, God can take people like that. This has been the message of our passage. And be humble. We've seen this in the context. And then God can take humble people and highly exalt them. God can take people that see their inherent weakness and know, you know what? God can get me through this. God can empower me. I'm not talking about a mystical empowerment. Unless you're talking about the fundamental foundation of our mystical empowerment. What? Okay, here, listen. Two ways in which we're empowered. One is on a spiritual level. Let me put it this way. Every single person you know, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, Christian, everyone is made to be alive because of God. In him, all things hold together. Christ is the composite thing that keeps the entire universe together. He empowers everyone. As Paul said in Acts 17, in him, we live and move and have our being. So you cannot get out of the, uh, out of the bed in the morning without God empowering you. And in that sense, you are alive because of Christ. You live in him. He empowers you. You live and move and breathe in him. He gives you life and breath and everything else. He's actively involved in his creation. In that sense, you are completely dependent upon God. But there's another sense, a very practical sense, in which you need to recognize that the weakness of your own humanity is something that makes you necessarily crave the fact that God would keep you on a path that that steers you clear from the kind of failure that Peter is about to walk into. A kind of temptation that you may face that's common to everyone because they are human. That God would provide a way of escape for you. That that's outside of yourself. That God can provide something for you that will keep you faithful in your marriage, keep you integrous at work, keep you doing the things that God asks you to do in your community, in your workplace, and not cowering and backing down because you're afraid. God can provide you what it takes. And that's in a very practical set of things that the Bible tells us about. But it begins by you recognizing your inherent weakness. Let me talk about that more specifically. The analogy I often use is the difference between software and hardware. You are software. You're created in the image of God, not the parts of you that you can see or touch, but the parts of you that are immaterial. You're also a human being that's made biologically out of the the dust of the earth, and you're animated. And you're animated because there's firmware, if you will, attached to your hardware. That firmware animates you just like an animal, just like a kangaroo, just like a cockroach. You have living cells in your body because of God animating that, that humanity. According to Genesis 3, he cursed the dirt. All the phosphorus, all the calcium, all the oxygen, all the nitrogen, all the carbon, all that has been cursed. And the firmware attached to your hardware is now in rebellion against God. You, as a spirit that is encased in that hardware, maybe a better word is enmeshed in that hardware as a whole, what they call a psychosomatic whole. You are both spirit and body, but you are primarily spirit as a person. You could cut off my arms and my legs. I don't recommend this, but if you did that, you wouldn't say, well, Mike's half the guy he used to be. I hope you'd say, no, Mike's still 100% Mike Fabares. It's just that my body now, I don't have half of my body. That is the material part of me. I'm encased and enmeshed in that. But the fallen humanity of my hardware with all that firmware that is struggling in this humanity and pushing in rebellion against God, now I become a Christian and my spirit that used to be in concert with that flesh, just wanting to do whatever I want to do, doesn't matter what God's rules are, now I have a heart that beats in sync with God. I've got my heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. I am, 2 Corinthians 5, a new creature in Christ. Now I want to serve God. Now I want to pray. Now I want to read my Bible. And here's the problem. When Peter was trying to pray in the garden... And he couldn't do it. Christ said, hey, the spirit is willing, but the 
the flesh is weak. You got a problem. As Peter put it later, the desires of your flesh, they wage war against your soul. Therefore, I need to look at my inherent weakness. That every person you hear about that that morally wipes out, everybody that stumbles and falls, everyone who backs down in a workroom when a discussion about homosexuality or Christianity or the Bible comes up and they fold, the things in their firmware, in their fallen humanity, are arguing and passionately fighting that desire to do what is right. And you ought to say, it's an overused phrase, I get it, but you ought to think about it in the best possible sense that you can say, there but for the grace of God go I. Were it not for God... Were it not for God helping and sustaining and having me take part of the resources that he's given me, I would fall too. Why? Because my humanity is crying out for the same things every person that falls is crying out for. In other words, when the Apostle Paul says, I'll go to prison and I'll even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that underneath all that, to use another familiar phrase, he is saying, because he proves it throughout the rest of his writings, so help me God. So help me God. Why? Because I got the same weak humanity that Peter has. The same weak humanity. And when Paul confronts Peter in in the letter he writes to the Galatian churches, he he says it as much. You folded. You folded, Peter. Under the pressure, the peer pressure about a different situation in Peter's life, but the same concept. But you know what? I think Paul recognizes this. He's got the same weakness. And when you look around at someone in your small group who bails out, you look at uh, the, the headlines of the evangelical news of another pastor falling, you need to say, there but for the grace of God go I. You say, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be integrous. I'm going to speak up for Christ. You need to say, so help me God. Because I know I've got the same inherent human weakness that they have. That is super important for us. And it better be the thing that we say because we know that we could be Peter Here is what he says, verse 34, before the rooster crows this day, you'll deny me three times. How easy was that for a human being to do, even with the best intentions, who has a willing spirit? Well, his flesh is so weak. How weak is it? Drop down to verse 54. Here's the scenario. We don't get out of the chapter in Luke 22 until we read in verse 54 that when they seized Jesus, they arrested him and led him away. They brought him to the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas, the big compound there in Jerusalem. And Peter was following Side by side, shoulder to shoulder, saying, you're not going to take my, my master, the Messiah. No, he's following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he sat down together. So now he's sitting with the people that are against Christ. He's not sitting as though he's standing with Christ or being with Christ. Peter sits down among them and a servant girl, of all people, a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light of that fire, he looked closely at him, she did rather, and said, man, this man was with him also. She says it to other people sitting around. I think that guy's one of, I, I saw him in the front row on the Temple Mount when Jesus was preaching. And he denied it. Verse 57. Saying, woman, I don't know him. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else said to him, you also were one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, if you're on the patio after your wedding ceremony of saying all these nice things about you, this gal that you're devoted to, and you had an hour between your second and third denial, that's a lot of time for you to say, wow, what am I doing? I mean, I just said I'd be devoted for the rest of my life. I'd swim the, the broadest sea. I'd climb the highest mountain. And I'm now saying I don't know who that lady is. You had an hour to think about this. But the pressure was on again. The tip of the spear was in your chest. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? You don't really believe the Bible's God's word, do you? You're not really thinking we're going to hell if we don't trust in Christ. You don't think that, do you? Again, it was the same pressure in his weakness. After a man said, certainly this man was also among you. He's a Galilean. The other passages tell us it's because of his accent that they said that. 
as a northern Galilean. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at him from a distance. You can picture this as Jesus standing where all the activity is going on. He's sitting in the courtyard where the fire is in the middle of the courtyard. And Jesus turns and looks at him. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said before, the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now he's not even going to watch what happens. He split, went through the gate, went out and cried, maybe in the Kidron Valley, about the fact that he couldn't be faithful to his Lord. I think you understand, don't you, that you could do the same thing? Matter of fact, I say that, and you might say, I just did that. I had a chance to stand for Christ. I folded. I was supposed to be faithful here, and I wasn't. I was supposed to have integrity here, and I didn't. I was supposed to tell the truth here, and I lied. If you say that, maybe you've stumbled enough to be humble, which is the context of our passage. That's a good place to start. So that if you do say, and I hope that you do, the whole point is to be strong. That's what he ends up wanting Peter to do is strengthen his brothers. I want you to be able to say, I will stand up. I will do the right thing. I will trust the Lord. I'll be imprisoned if I have to. I'll even die for Christ. I want you to say that. But underlying all that, I want you to say it's not because of anything inherent in me. By the grace of God, I'll do that. So help me, God, I'll do that. That certainly is my intention, but I need God to steer me through that temptation. Jesus makes that point clear, like the Apostle Paul later who talks in 1 Corinthians 10 about the people that came out of Egypt under Moses. They had all of this miraculous stuff. I mean, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of, of, of cloud and the, the pillar of fire and all these things, the manna, the quail, all these miraculous things. And yet given time, and it didn't take much, they did, it. they did what all of us want to do. I want to live like the Egyptians. They want to sit down to eat and drink, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, and they want to rise up to play. We just want to have fun. We want to be comfortable. We, I mean, come on. And then it says, because of that mindset, they fell into sexual immorality. If there was internet connection in the wilderness, they'd be looking at porn. That's the way these people were. Because you know what? I know we're not supposed to. Well, I just, whatever. I just want to be happy. I want to feel good. And God started disciplining that generation. And Paul says, you know what? All that was written for our example. That was written so we would learn, verse 6, not to desire evil things as they did. Now, my flesh desires evil things, but I am supposed to, Romans chapter 6, I'm supposed to deny myself. I'm supposed to marshal the members of my body and present myself as a slave to righteousness. That's a battle I can't win on my own. Don't put Christ to the test, verse 9 says, of 1 Corinthians 10. And don't grumble, verse 10, as some of them did. Now, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for our instructions. And verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You've got lots of reasons to trust Christ. You've heard a lot of sermons, I trust, that have proven to you the veracity of the message that you hold to. You know Christ is coming back, and you're confident of it. You have every reason to trust Christ this week, every reason to stand up in evangelism and apologetics, every reason to disciple people, every reason to be faithful and to be truthful, every reason... But you know that people with a lot more reasons to be faithful than you have fallen. And the Bible says you got to learn from the elder brothers in our spiritual lives that this is a battle you got to win. The next verse, do you know what it is? No temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. Everyone struggles with the same temptations, but God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape. He's going to come and give you an out. See, Peter should have said, but for the grace of God, I would fail, but... So help me God, I'll stand. And with that mentality, I bet he could have been faithful. But he wasn't. 
He wasn't because there's something about an overconfidence in the statement in verses 33 and 34. Why can someone with so much passion to do what's right still fall? Well, we started the passage with this, and I think it's the next place we should go back up to verse 31. Luke twenty two thirty one because there's a spiritual battle going on in the background. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded, not only is the word sift the only occurrence of that Greek word in the New Testament, this is the only time we see this Greek word demanded, a strong command. I, 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 I demand to have them. I want them all. That he might sift you like wheat to shake you. Picture those little plastic chess pieces on a chessboard. They're so vulnerable. Someone bumps the table, they could fall over. Someone wants to come and shake that entire board, wants to knock everyone over. And that you all there, I know it specifically, it, it, it applies to the 11 other apostles besides Judas. It applies to Simon and the 10 others. I, I get that. But Peter turns around and says, that's true of all of us. He writes his letter to his Christian audience. And he says in First Peter chapter 5, you guys need to be sober and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He knew that from personal experience. And he says that to you and to me. And you may be a very modernized, you know, Western thinking, iPhone carrying, you know, South Orange County Christian. But if you don't think there's a spiritual battle going on of real persons who have intellect, emotion, and will. They're persons. That doesn't mean they're human. They're persons. They're made in the image of God in the sense that they have intellect, emotion, and will. They don't need hardware. They live disembodied because they were never made to be in bodies. And we had a whole bunch of these people, bunch, there's a theological word, very exacting word, a bunch of these beings created and a bunch of them fell and became what we know of as demons. And they're out to get you. You need to know, number two, the forces against you. Consider the forces invisibly in this world right now that are against you. And if you don't believe this, I guess there's no reason for us to have you back next week, right? I mean, think about it. If you don't believe what the Bible has to say about a spiritual battle, Jesus taught about it as much as he talked about the realities of anything positive was the realities of everything in this world negatively, the spiritual battle that goes on behind the scenes. Satan wants to take you out. Because he doesn't want you to be faithful. He doesn't want you to be truthful. He doesn't want you to be an evangelist. He doesn't want you to stand up for Christ. He doesn't want you to stand up for biblical truth. He just doesn't want that. And if you say, well, yeah, that's because he hates me. Well, he does hate you, but he doesn't hate you because he hates you. Here's an illustration that may help you. Baron Trump. Baron Trump. Picture him. You got him in your mind? Baron Trump. Never written a position paper. I don't think he's ever been out stumping. He hasn't given any speeches on political theory. I don't have never heard his view on the economy. I don't know much about Baron Trump. But I do know this. People attack him all the time. Jane Fonda's brother, stellar individual that he is, Peter, writes on his Facebook page to his 59,000 followers on Twitter that Baron Trump ought to be put in a cage and locked in there with pedophiles to sexually abuse him. Okay, that's what Peter Fonda thinks. And you know what I want to say? What did Baron Trump ever do to you? Well, nothing. See, Peter Fonda is going to attack Baron Trump not because Baron Trump did anything. He hates Baron Trump because he hates Donald Trump. And that's the reason he attacks him. And the tripe on SNL, the writer of SNL, you heard that one? He said, Baron Trump will be the next mass murderer in our society. Can you imagine if someone said that about your 12-year-old to all of their followers? One of the most influential comedy shows out there. That is what the kind of stuff that they're writing and propagating to their followers. And you're thinking, what in the world? 
What do you see in the 12-year-old? Well, it's not about the 12-year-old. Oh, I want to get at the 12-year-old. No, really, I don't want to get at the 12-year-old. I want to get the 12-year-old because I want to get at his dad. See, the day you put your trust in Christ, you change teams. And the enemy that hates God and hates God because God has said you are condemned, you'll be sealed in in a place called the lake of fire, you're going to be tormented there, you have lost. Those demons hate God and they will pick on you because you're a much easier target than your dad. You understand. And so you're under attack. If we're going to go down to the beach, park on PCH, go down the thousand steps, for instance, we're going to go down to the beach. If I said, okay, let's just go to the beach this afternoon and broad daylight, bring your kids, bring the bucket for sand, the kids to play, bring your towel, bring the chairs, we walk down to the beach. No big deal. But if it's new moon, pitch dark, you'd never been to the West Coast before. I mean, you flew in from some weird place and I said, listen, hey, I got to tell you, we're going to go from PCH here down to the beach and it's dark and there's no lights. I just want to tell you, there's lots of beasts that live in the, in the, the bushes around here and those houses there, they come out from the houses and sometimes they attack and they, they eat little children. So, all right, let's go down to the beach. I guess you're going to say, let's, can we go to a different beach? Is probably what you're going to say. I don't want to go to this beach. Say, no, no, we got to go to this beach. The master says, we got to go to this beach. See, I bet you'd walk down the stairs a whole lot less carefree than if you were just going to do it today and you had no fear of what's going to... You know, if I said there are beasts that come out at night and eat little children, you would be circumspect, to use a biblical word. You would be careful. You would be vigilant. When, the, when Peter says there's, a, there's a, a, a roaring lion, an enemy, an adversary that wants to devour you, it starts with this, be sober-minded, be alert. You need to have in your mindset not a paralyzed fear, but knowing this, we have, no, we have no other path but to get to the kingdom. As Paul said in our daily Bible reading, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He goes back, and here's the word he uses. He strengthens the disciples. That's what Luke said. Same concept here. To strengthen your brothers. I want to strengthen the disciples by telling them it's going to be a perilous path. If you don't have some healthy respect for the spiritual battle that goes on, like the one we just are still reading in our Old Testament daily Bible reading in Job, where Job is attacked, not because Satan hates Job, but because Satan hates God. And just because God said, here's a guy, look at him, man. He's awesome. I mean, I want God to be proud of me and all, but I don't want him bringing me up in a meeting with Satan. And that's exactly what happens there. Look at my servant Job. And Satan goes, let me at him. Let me at him. Let me, at him. let me have him. I'll sift him like wheat. I mean, you could put that phrase right on top of Job chapter 1. And that's exactly what he does. He taxes his kid. He taxes his finances. He taxes his health. He taxes his marriage. All of that. Why? What did Job do to Satan? See, the only thing you did to Satan, really, was you changed teams. And he hates your dad. He hates your father. And if you don't walk with a sense of healthy respect, I'm not trying to have you find a demon behind every bush and just because you can't find a parking place, Satan's attacking you. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you that when you're tempted to sin, that is his nickname, the tempter. When you're tempted to stray, when you're tempted to fold, when you're tempted to compromise, I know who's behind it. And the Bible makes that very clear. Oh, I know you got firmware that's desiring to do what Satan is going to pitch to you today. But you want to understand there's a battle going on. And you got to not only understand your inherent weakness, you got to consider the forces against you. Turn to one passage real quickly with me. Ephesians chapter 6. The thing that might make you walk down those stairs with a little bit more confidence, not in yourself, but confidence that you'll get there safely to the beach, is that you've got some armor on. This is a very helpful passage. 
And it's a classic one. You know it. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 12. First of all, it tells you what I'm already telling you. When you feel the tip of the spear in your chest to compromise, to do wrong, to fold, to shut up when you should speak up, to sit down when you should stand up, when you have that temptation and pressure, whether it's the Caiaphas courtyard experience or standing before King Agrippa or Felix and Festus like Paul had to, remember it's not flesh and blood that you're fighting. That pressure to compromise is the rulers and authorities, not physical ones, but the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. My dad was a cop in Long Beach. I remember vivid memories of him as a kid coming home from work, taking his badge off of his chest, putting it on the dresser, taking his gun out of his holster, putting it on the dresser, taking off his dark blue uniform. And then underneath that was that black Kevlar vest. And I remember that because it was Velcro, you know, back in the day, ancient times right now. I mean, just new thing. And I remember just hearing that Velcro rip off. And then he'd pull that thing off over his head and I'd see his white t-shirt just dripping with sweat. And every night if I saw my dad come home, that's the picture I had. And I know, you know, and he had lots of guns everywhere, pulling off his ankles and everywhere. And, and I thought, I'm glad my dad goes out there into this world that at nighttime I'm watching the news of all that's going on in suburban L.A. I'm sure glad dad has all of those tools. I know one thing you wouldn't want. You, want to, you wouldn't want to be out there without those tools. Just like marching through that tunnel onto the gridiron, it's really good if you've got a helmet on, you've got your shoulders pads on, you've got some knee pads on, you've got some hip pads on. Good for you to be prepared. I doubt you're going to play the way you ought to play unless you've got the equipment on. And that's the picture here. Having done all the stand firm, stand firm. Why? Because the whole point is walking out onto the gridiron strong. Look at verse 10. Go up to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. And how's he going to get you strong? Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You've got to gear up. A lot of people are walking into their workplace without their Kevlar vest on. You're walking into your workplace without your weapon on. You're not ready for the spiritual battle. You walk into a Saturday night to sit down on the couch and you are not spiritually prepared for the temptations you face. And this is a great passage. We don't have time to get into it, but verse 14. The belt of truth. It better be about truth. If you don't know the truth, if you don't know the things that correspond with reality, if you don't know what it is that God has said, you're in big trouble. Breastplate of righteousness. I don't think that's the imputed righteousness of our salvation. I think that's what Paul's constantly pushing us toward. In the book of Romans, for instance, of doing the right thing, of being a slave of righteousness, of putting to death the deeds of the body. It's about the best defense being a really good offense. It's about you going to the workplace, not passively hoping you can stand up for Christ, but going in with a mission to stand up for Christ. I'm an evangelist. I'm someone who's there to counsel. I'm there to step up and say what's right. Shoes. Now I'm thinking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. The shoes on your feet that give me stability. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. Like a soccer player with his cleats on. I know that I'm right with God. I have peace with my maker. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I better trust that truth. I better know the right thing. I know that the world's saying, be on the right side of history. Believe these things. Stop with the exclusivity of God. But I'm going to say, no, 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 no. I know what the truth is and I trust it. No matter what my culture says. No matter what the polls say. No matter what my feelings say. The shield of faith, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And the helmet, speaking of helmet, the helmet of salvation. Salvation, that picture, though I think of it in our vocabulary as present. It's often in scripture, most often. Future, I'm going to be saved. That will be saved in the day of God's judgment. I'm going to be saved. I know that in the end, we win. That keeps me 
protected in my mind and my heart. And then one more thing, the sword of the spirit. Jesus certainly exemplified this in the wilderness with Satan. He pulled out scripture. He pulled out scripture. He pulled out scripture. Even when Satan twisted scripture, he pulled out scripture, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, not to mention prayer, praying at all times in the spirit, which is not some kind of mystical, you know, euphoric experience. It's you praying in line with what the spirit of God wrote in the book that he wrote. It's speaking and teaching and praying in line with the truth with all prayer and supplication to that end be alert with all perseverance making supplication another word for intensive intercession for other people making supplication for all the saints pray 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 belt breastplate shoes shield helmet sword prayer much more maybe for your small group or just for your own devotions to spend some time considering the force against you and the tools that God gives us elsewhere but in this passage the only tool we have verse number 32 and the one that that we should be leaving thinking about this morning is this one but I have prayed for you verse 22 32 but I have prayed for you let me put it this way let's make this as personal as I can there's a chessboard full of Christians right here in our church And they're starting to stand. Some are standing really tall for Christ. Satan wants to come and knock us all down. And I'd love to think that God is going to protect us and no one's going to be shaken. But we're going to be shaken. I just walked out here to preach, hearing about people in our church that are being shaken. Shaken by all kinds of things. Terrible things. And I know we're being shaken. And you're going to be shaken. God allows that. Sometimes like Job, I wish he didn't. But he says, okay, have Adam. The leash is on Satan. But there it is. And what we need to know is that that shaking and that threat to our lives, the greatest hope we have, this text says, is that God will pray for you. So in this church, chessboard full of Christians, standing at different heights, God's trying to make us strong. He's asked us to be strong. There's a shaking going on. And then your peace, your pawn, he looks at you and he prays specifically for you. And I'm not saying that just because Jesus is saying he prays for Peter. I know Jesus, here it comes, Romans chapter 8, Verse number 34 says he prays for you, all of you, all of us as Christians. Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus. He's the one who died. More than that, he was raised from the dead, and he's at the right hand of God. Indeed, he is interceding for us. He's begging God for us. As a matter of fact, that's the word. You want a little tidbit into the language here? Verse 32, the word pray, we say in English, pray. We translate at least two primary words in the Greek New Testament for pray. This is the the highest, most intensive word for it, deomai. Deomai is the Greek word of intensity. It's, It's translated in the old translations. Here's a word we don't use anymore, beseech beseech to beg you could translate it accurately but i have begged for you begged what i begged god for you that your faith may not fail i don't want you to be cast utterly headlong in this christian i don't want you to be silenced i don't want you to fall and just never get up you're going to stumble in caiaphas's courtyard he promises that in verse 34 it's going to happen so this isn't an unanswered prayer this is a prayer about when you do stumble i want you to get up And when you have turned again, when you turn out of that, when you stumble and you turn from that, then I want you to get back in the game and I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want a strong Peter strengthening the other disciples. That deomai, that begging of Christ on our behalf, and that promise that God is there praying for you and for me ought to give us a great sense of confidence, not in our own abilities, but in the fact that Christ stands there right now before the Father praying for us. And it's not just an empty promise request. It is a powerful request. It is him saying, I know I can get this kid down those steps to the beach through many tribulations will enter the kingdom of God. This is where you and I need to be. 
Number three in your outline, we need to put our confidence in the right place. It's not you. It's not your flesh. It's not who you've been, not your past, not because you haven't fallen in the past. You need to put your confidence in the right place. You want to be specific? The key of that is the right person. And it's not you and me. I want to finish strong. Don't you want to finish strong? I want to finish vocal. I want to finish strong. I want to go to death or prison, whatever it takes for the truth of Christ. But I'm going to put my confidence, I should put my confidence at least, I'm hoping to put my confidence where God says it should be, and that is that Christ intercedes for me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I've written these things, John says to you, that you may not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What a good thought that is, that he stands before the Father and he advocates for us. I mean, if you're in trouble and you're guilty, which we are when we stumble, I know this, before the judge, the Father, i got a great attorney. And that attorney stands there and says, Mike Fabares, let me, let me defend him. Do you know that God is looking at you right now with Christ standing between the two of you? Saying, that is my guy. That's my gal. And I am going to strengthen him. I'm going to be with him. I, 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 he's mine. Oh, Satan may shake us and ask to have us, but the having is only to harass us. When Peter warns us about being sober and alert, knowing about our roaring lion, he says, you better pray, you better trust, you better resist the devil. He will flee from you. Put your confidence in the right place. That word, epistrepho, is the word, epistrepho. To turn when you've returned, it's a physical turning around. And Peter had to make that physical turning around. It's both physical and metaphorical. He has to turn from this, this failure, this weakness, this weakness of confidence in himself. And it happens in John 21. Real quick, let's, let's, let's look at this before we end. John chapter 21. There's so many parallels here to what goes on in Caiaphas's courtyard. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, you need to understand the geography of this. They're in Jerusalem. Jesus rises. He appears to his disciples. They're in the upper room. And then Peter goes back to Galilee, and it says in this passage, the Sea of Tiberias, it's called in verse 1, he goes fishing. Now, when Peter was fishing, he was a fisherman, and Jesus comes on the scene and says, you're no longer going to be a fisherman. You're going to be with me. You're going to be fishing for people, for men. And then he says, I'm going to groom you and make you a preacher, and you're going to be the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, a mega church, the preaching pastor, the senior lead pastor. That's going to be you. And instead, he's out here fishing, and he takes with him James and John. He takes Nathaniel. Take a look at this text. I'm going fishing, verse 3. The setting, verses 1 and 2. They get in the boat. They catch nothing, verse 3. It's daybreak. They've been, they've been fishing all night with nets, you know, of course. That's how they fish. Jesus stood on the shore. It's just dawn. So the shadowy figure on the, on the shore, the disciples didn't know who it was. They didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? That's an interesting way to talk to them. But of course, that's how Christ talked to them. They were his followers, yet they weren't following very well right now. And they said, no, we didn't catch anything. No. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And if that's a deja vu reading for you, that's because that's a deja vu moment. Luke chapter 5 is where Jesus is introduced to Peter on the lake fishing. He doesn't catch anything. God providentially takes all the fish away from this net and says, hey, move it over here four feet and you'll catch a bunch. It was an absurd request. But God is showing his providence. Christ is showing his sovereignty. And he catches fish. And that he recognizes the deity of Christ. He recognizes the authority of Christ. Same thing happens here. They cast the net on the other side, verse 6. So many fish, they couldn't even haul it in. John identifies himself, who's also there. 
He says, it's Christ. Peter jumps in the sea and starts swimming the hundred yards to the shore. Verse 8, they were dragging in the net, but Peter is to the shore first. Verse 9, then they got out of the boat. Now underline this, they saw a charcoal fire. Charcoal fire? Talk about the words demanded and sift being only used one time in the Greek New Testament. Not only that, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, very rare words. Here's a word that's not used anywhere else except for John 18, 18. It's the way that John describes the fire in Caiaphas's courtyard, a charcoal fire. Again now, Jesus sits there. I mean, it's almost painful. The same kind of fire, the same kind of glow. Early at dawn, he makes a charcoal fire. And I put some fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net full of fish. They counted them, 153. Verse 12, Jesus says, come and have some breakfast. None of them said, who's this? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them. So with the fish, they're having breakfast, a bit of an awkward breakfast. Peter is supposed to be the pastor in Jerusalem. And here they are in Galilee, and Jesus is having breakfast with them. And it's the third time Jesus is revealed to them. And when they'd finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said Simon to Simon Peter, Simon, uh-oh, there's his old name again, just like in Luke 22, John 18. Do you love me more than these? Man, talk about painful. Same kind of glow of a fire. Who knows? Same temperature. There they are. Same glow of red. They're eating breakfast. It's a bit awkward. Fishing for fish should be fishing for people. And he says, you love me more than these? That's a comparison statement. Do you love me more than these? A little demonstrative pronoun. It needs an antecedent. Demonstrative pronoun. These. These what? You've got to define it. Well, grammatically, it could mean at least three things. These. Do you love me more than these fish, these nets, these boats, this life? I hope you love me more than that. That would be a good question to ask. I don't think that's the question Jesus was asking. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than Nathaniel, more than Philip, more than Peter? more than James, more than John. He could have been asking Peter that, which is a problem for some of us. You do love people more than you love Christ, but that I don't think is Peter's issue, and I don't think that's the question he's asking Peter. He's asking him the question that he was boasting about in John 18, asking him the question that really he was inferring in his question in Luke 22. He thought he had a greater love for Christ than those guys. Do you love me more than these guys love me? Now, I know there's a distinction in words here, and I know first-year Greek students like to tell preachers they don't know what they're talking about when they make the distinction between the word love in verse number 15 and love at the bottom of verse 15. Do you agapao me more than these? And then he says, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. First-semester Greek students like to point out that pastors don't know anything about it. But if you get around to studying enough about what's going on, there's a great exegetical point in a large body of very accomplished Greek scholars that say there is an important distinction going on here in this passage. Nevertheless, I'll leave that for debate for another time. But at least to read it the way you would read it in the first century. Hey, John, do you agapao me more than these guys agapao me? Well, you know, I phileo you. And he said, fine then, feed my lambs. We're not talking about fish anymore. We're metaphorically talking about you being a shepherd, being a pastor, being a teacher, strengthening my brothers. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, there's that word again, Simon, mm, do you agapao me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said, then tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? 
And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? Oh, by the way, the third time. You'll deny me three times. He denies him three times, and now he asks him three times. I'm like, we're back at the altar saying, would you repeat those vows for me again? You just denied me on the patio, but could you please tell me you love me now? Here's a guy who doesn't want to say it. Here's a guy that's struggling. said, if you love me, then would you do what I've asked you to do? And he says in verse 18, or first he says, feed my sheep. He says, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. Then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Then he says, truly, truly, much like the prefect, Simon, Simon, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Well, that picture of stretching out your hands, John knows because he's lived into the 90s now when he writes this gospel and he knows that Peter was executed. And we best sources at least say that he's executed upside down on a cross. He stretches out his hands and he dies as a martyr. And you think, well, that's a, a very you know, distressing thing to hear at breakfast. It was the best thing Jesus could have said. He's there saying, I'd swim the, the, the widest ocean. I'd climb the highest mountain. I'd die for you. And then he goes out and falls on his face and he denies he even knows him. Then he comes back and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Be a pastor. Be a leader. Stand up in front of people and be a force for strengthening my people. And then he says, you know what? You're going to die for me. You're going to love me so much. You are going to be faithful. You're going to walk to the end. You're going to be in the book of martyrs. That's how much you're going to love me. Oh, this is encouraging, even though it's a horrible thing. As a matter of fact, he responds later, verse 21, hey, what about this guy? He's pointing to John now. Uh, What's his story? Jesus said, if it's my will for him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's exactly what happens in verse 19. He says to Peter, follow me, follow me, follow me. I'm going to say to you exactly what Jesus says to Peter. And that is Satan wants to attack you. You probably already have stumbled into some of his snares. I want you to get up. I want you to turn. I want you to be strong, not in your own confidence about your own self, but about the fact that God gives you armor to walk into the battle, that he can take weak people and make them strong, to go out and say, I will stand for Christ. I will die for Christ. To go out there and to do that and to recognize that when it comes down to it, you're following God's path for your life. You're doing what God has asked you to do. Be strong, not in yourself. But in those simple words, because you're following Christ, well, we know by Acts chapter 1, he's leaving us. He's abandoning us. He's going up to the sky. He's the ascension. But he said in the upper room discourse, I will not leave you an orphan. Matter of fact, he ends the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the first century. No, even to the end of your lives. No, even to the end of the age. We're in that passage, you understand. We're disciple-making people in the time of the second time of Noah, right? The new Sodom and Gomorrah. We are here right now. And he says, go make disciples. Be light, be salt. Do what I've asked you to do. Fight temptation. Go and do it. And he's saying to you, and he's saying to me, I will be with you. Moses goes out, falls on his face, kills the Egyptian, working for his father-in-law. That's got to be somewhat depressing. And (laughs) he shows up and says, go back and talk to Pharaoh. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can't even speak well. I'm a failure. I will be with you. Go. Jeremiah, go speak to the people. I don't want to do that. I'm too young. I can't speak. I'm not trained. I will be with you. Gideon, go fight the Midianites. No, come on. We're terrible. I don't know anything about fighting. How can I do it? No, go do it. Don't be afraid. Be strong, Gideon. Why? I am with you. Solomon, I'm inexperienced. How can I lead these people? I can't be the king of these people. I will be with you. 
I mean, you know the passage, Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Here it comes. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You walk into the lunchroom. You feel the tip of the spear against your chest. I hope you got your armor on that day. But remember this. Not only is he interceding for you, in the person of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he is with you. Go back to that scene in the Valley of Elah. I don't want you to be in the gigantic sandals of the overconfident Philistine. I know a lot of preachers would like you rather to be in the sandals of David, but I don't even want you there today. I want you to be in the sandals of all the Israelite soldiers that stood up on the mountain. It says the Israelites and the men of Judah up on the mountain there that were paralyzed. They were at a standoff. They were at an impasse. They couldn't defeat the enemy They couldn't push them out of their territory because they had Goliath standing there. And then a shepherd boy steps up who'd been anointed by Samuel. He takes a bunch of stones. He puts them in a pouch. He runs to the battle and he throws that rock, gets that gigantic giant of a man to fall down. And I know this is gory, PG-13, sorry, but he goes up to Goliath. He takes his gigantic sword out of his, his sheath and I can see him now. And he takes that head and he chops that head off. One swipe, I don't know how sharp it is. I just gross. He's taking the head off. And then he takes that that mangy hair and picks up a a gigantic melon of a head. And he stands there in the valley. That's the picture. Read it for yourself. He's got a severed head, dripping blood out of a neck that's just been decapitated. He was the strong one, was he not? He conquered the enemy. What happened to all the people in the sandals up on the mountain range? Here's what it says. 1 Samuel 17, 52. And the men of Israel and the men of Judah arose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines as far as Ekron. They pushed them back into their own country. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a mystical spiritual empowerment. You can't get out of bed without God. But then there's the empowerment that you get, not only by throwing on the armor of God and being ready for battle, but looking, and I know it's bloody, at the bloody victory of the son of David who took our enemy and decapitated him. And he looks now at you and says, hey guys, we're forgiven. Oh, he can harass you, he can kill your body, but he cannot kill your soul or cast you into hell. The one who can condemn you is now your advocate. He is your friend. He's your supporter. He's gonna stand in the workroom with you. He's gonna stand at the mailbox with you. He's gonna stand there in your life and defend you. Don't be afraid. I love it. The men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout. And they ran, they pursued the Philistines. I want you to be strong in Christ. I want you to know that your confidence has got to be in the son of David who severed the head of the enemy. On the cross, he's disarmed all the powers against us. It's kind of a mess. They're still running around like a chicken with his head cut off. That's the, I mean, this is a terrible analogy. But Goliath is still running around making a mess, but he's severed head. I mean, he's... He's not going to have any reign over us in the next life. All he can do is mess with us right now. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Pray with me, please. God, we are grateful for what we study in the Bible, a historic event of Christ absorbing the wrath that we deserved and rising from the dead to prove that the wages of sin have been reversed. Christ is no longer dead as the first fruits, the archetype, as Greek says, the the prototype of those who will be resurrected. We know that our life after this life 
is so much more important. And yet we have no chance to build the kingdom in the next life. We've got to build it now. We have to see the message of the gospel go out from us and through us. God, thanks that we have a church filled with people that can be a part of that effort. We can strengthen the brothers. We can win people from being hostile to the gospel to being our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, if we fail, then we feel incapable or unworthy. I pray we would today get past any of that concern about ourselves. And just like Peter there, get up, get back in the game and say, we got to do our job. Doesn't matter what the calling is for anyone around us. Doesn't matter what the calling is for any missionary, any pastor. Our, our calling is where our calling is and we've got to be faithful to it. Make us faithful as we put our confidence in the right place, in the right person, in whose name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.